From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, author, leadership strategist, and acclaimed public speaker, Greg McEwen. You only have just enough time in your life to actually do what's essential. Anytime you're saying yes to something less important or non-essential altogether, you're taking away from something that is much, much more important. Greg explains the big ideas behind his best-selling books, Essentialism and Effortless. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Over the past few years, as I've made this show, I've had the opportunity and privilege to interview dozens and dozens of luminaries from the world of business and academia. I've talked to executives, management strategists, consultants, and some of the smartest thinkers out there, and they've shared their insights, their wisdom from the top, you might say, about a wide range of topics. And today, you're going to hear from Greg McEwen. He's a New York Times bestselling author whose books have sold literally in the millions. He's an accomplished public business speaker and consultant with clients like Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, and Adobe. Greg has dedicated his career to researching and writing about leadership and decision-making strategies and why some people break through to the next level, but others don't. And his core concept is an idea called essentialism, which can be summarized as recognizing what is essential, prioritizing it, and working to eliminate everything else. But unlike some of the other folks I've talked to, while Greg's ideas certainly apply in the workplace and in the boardroom, essentialism is bigger than just business. It's a framework for every important decision that affects our lives, professional and personal. Greg laid out his philosophy in his 2014 book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. His latest book, which came out in 2021, is almost like a part two. It's called Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most, which, as you'll hear, explains how to simplify those important things which are essential to any area of your life. Greg McEwen was born and raised in London in the UK, and he grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which had an enormous influence on his life and still does to this day. And while he says it set him apart as a kid in the UK, it also informed his beliefs and how to make decisions about them. I think that 
being raised in England and being different helped at a very early age with a few things. One of them is it made me think very carefully and deeply about what I believe early and what I don't believe and and to ask questions about those things rather than to sort of just go along with whatever the cultural norm is of the time. Yeah. And so that's been a lifelong quest to understand what do you believe and what you know what really matters to you. And you know, my earliest experiences teaching and writing one of the church distinctions is that there's no paid clergy, and that means that teaching is for everyone. And mm. starting as young as you can, as young as you can imagine. And so my exposure to just the process of learning and teaching as the essence of leadership uh, was something that was also transformative about those early years. I, I read that um, you, like um, many members of young folks in in the church, you did a mission. Um, yes, which um, uh, was not to a particularly exotic place like El Salvador or, or or somewhere in Africa. You went to Toronto, Canada. But from what I understand, your your the idea you had was you would do the mission and then you would return to the UK and study law and become a barrister, a, a high level uh, attorney in England. Yes, well, that's exactly right. And in the same way that. The early years were uh, were catalytic and life changing. Uh, the mission was as well. I I really sensed in a another level that I wanted to spend my life teaching. I found so much satisfaction hmm. in being able to listen to other people and teach in not just a one way stream, but to to listen and to teach in a certain way so that you both learn together was. I don't know, let's call it close to joy. Hmm. And But despite that, and I think there's a lesson in this, I still applied to law school, went to law school. And so I returned from the mission to law. And there was nothing wrong with law per se, but it didn't hold anything of that joy that I'm describing. Yeah. And so I was torn. I'd spend you know, hours doing going to classes and studying the books and then hours more into the early hours uh, reading and writing on the subjects that really I had great passion for. Hmm. You actually quit law school and, and went instead to, to BYU uh, to pursue a, a degree in journalism. And I, I, I mean, for somebody who was interested in, in teaching or in educating, that's a, a, I mean, this is what I did for the first part of my career. I was a reporter and a journalist. And you... Uh, for a story that you really wanted to be a columnist at the student paper and you wrote 200 columns, like practice columns, even before you like pitched yourself as a columnist, you, like you came armed with two. Is it is it true? It's almost true. I wrote 200 columns. That's true. But it was in partnership with one of the executive directors of the of the paper. And so this was all agreed to it would be a daily column right um, well, you wrote 200 in advance in advance they were they, <laughs> they, they were they were ready i've never been so prepared for such an assignment I, by this point i mean i had quit law school and i was totally focused now on on this you know what what felt to me like the real path and so i was just trying to figure out how you could spend a life teaching and writing um, and so the first day the first column comes out, 
But when I read the article, I noticed something had changed in it, and it felt awkward. And, and so I went to see the executive director, just sort of trying to get a sense of it, and had a meeting there also with somebody up higher up who had uh, made an executive decision like, no, we don't do columnists. And so the whole thing got cancelled. And as it turns out, among the 10 people who read that article that day, Anna Worthen did. She's now your wife and... <laughs> She's my wife. And so the paper played a disproportionate role for sure in Anna and I finding each other and, uh, and getting married. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this was, uh, you know, this is 21 years ago. We just celebrated our 21st anniversary. And that's the best decision of my life. And, and all of that was unknown to me you know, the moment this column is cancelled. It's like, no, yeah. what that column needed to do, it has already done. I just didn't know that. When you um, you eventually went on to, to study um, at Stanford and get your MBA, um, what was your plan, your idea? This is in, in sort of the, I guess, 2006 to 2008. I mean, probably a lot of your classmates were either going to go into finance or consulting or maybe some into tech and entrepreneurship. Did you think about doing any of that stuff at the time? When I first felt I was supposed to go to Stanford, I had been at church and somebody had been invited last minute to just come up and speak. I don't remember what they said, but they were at Stanford Law School and on the way home, brainstorming with Anna about all different ideas. So maybe I should do this. Maybe we should do that. Mm. And I said, oh, maybe I should go to Stanford and do, you know, graduate work there. And the second I said it, I felt this clear confirmation, like that is what you should do. That is the place to go. The first time I applied to Stanford and didn't get in and I stayed with it two or three years later, applied again. And so I went there with a sense of amazement when I got in. I could not believe I got in. It was an absolute game changer for me in what was possible. And so when I went there, it was like, I remember sitting in every one of my classes instead of just saying, okay, well, what do I have to do for this class? Mm. I had an overarching series of questions that each class was locked into so that I was taking, in a sense, two sets of notes, one to pass the class, but a second to say, how does that inform you know, the underlying questions I'm really here to answer? Mm. And really that is where uh, ultimately essentialism was already being written through that experience. Wow. So that book comes out in 2014. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But back to uh, when you finish up your MBA, I guess uh, you went into, into consulting and something happened, right? That was it was sort of a, the catalyst that sparked the idea for the book. Um, and I guess it was right before the birth of, of one of your kids. What um, what happened? Yes. there's. I'd received an email from a colleague who said, look, Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I need you to be at this client meeting. And Friday comes along, you know, to my shame, I go leave my hours old daughter and my wife to go to this meeting. And afterwards, I remember my colleague even saying, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. <laughs> but the look on their faces did not evince that sort of respect. Yeah. And even if they had, I made a fool's bargain. And what I learned from it was, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. You had been, up until that point, kind of, is it fair to say, 
that your life was, I mean, in client services and in consulting, it's a, it can be a grind, right? I mean, you are there to serve the client and, um, and it means that you have to be available all the time. I'd worked in leadership consulting. And so, yes, I think that there, there are a lot of demands and there's a lot of assumption within corporatism generally without anyone really explicitly saying it corporation is the most important thing. Yes. And then I'm, you know, I'm keen to admit that there's also just within me because there was a desire to achieve and to succeed. You know, that story, that failure, to me, especially now, is just on me. Yeah. You know, one has to develop a heightened awareness of your ability to choose, that it can't be taken away or even given away. It can be forgotten. And I think I was doing that uh, instead of saying, no, I, I have a choice. Which choice do you make here? Which trade-off do you want to make? Because every time you're saying yes, I mean, you're saying no to many things. So the, the idea behind essentialism, as you define it, because um, well, I guess we should preface this by saying there is a sort of a philosophical strain called essentialism, this notion that um, uh, that there's an essence within everything. It's very different from, I think, fair to say, different from how you define the, this concept. It's got not the least to do with each other. They're just not part of the same yeah. school of thought in any way. Uh, it really, the, the name just comes from the idea that we need to explore what is essential, eliminate what's not essential, and make it as effortless as possible to do what's essential. And that that explore, eliminate, execute is an ongoing process. But it's more than a process. It's a way of thinking. That's why it's an ism, a way of seeing the world. And once you see the world from this lens, it's like being Marie Kondo and walking into a closet <laughs> and working with her. And she's like, no, it's not about how much stuff you have in here. It's going through every item and asking you know, her classic question is, does it spark joy? Yeah. And if it doesn't live up to that very high standard, then you eliminate it. And so that by metaphor is really what essentialism is. It's to suddenly see your life through that kind of lens. Is this really essential or is it not? And if it's not, you can eliminate it because you only have just enough time in your life to actually do what's essential. So anytime you're saying yes to something less important or non-essential altogether, you're taking away from something that is much, much more important to you. So that's sort of the, the math of life. And essentialism helps to bring that clarity forward so that you can see that reality before it's too late to do anything about it. So the, the idea behind, I think, one of the core ideas behind the book comes from this notion and, and clearly from your own experience that we are kind of programmed to believe that success is doing it all, achieving it all. But in actual fact, what you discovered and what you write is that that is a recipe for failure, that actually we have to very methodically edit our lives down. Yes, there's, I can say it bluntly, which is that we need to, like, rule number one, stop lying about being able to do it all. Yeah. And then the second problem that goes with it is you can have it all. You just do it all so you can have it all. But 
you can't do it all. So nothing after that premise works. You're going to end up being stretched too thin, a mm -hmm. worker at home to an unhealthy degree. You're going to be busy but not productive. You're going to feel on the edge of exhaustion or maybe just all the way burned out. Mm -hmm. That's the predictable outcome of that paradigm. And I, I generally say to people, look, if it's working for you, if the paradigm's working, don't listen to anything I've written about. That's fine. Proceed. You know, in fact, double down on it if it's working so well. Don't sleep at all. But essentialism is just based on a premise that if you cannot do it all, you need a different way of making decisions. Even if it isn't true that all the essentials get your focus and none of the non-essentials, you can be over time less wrong. Yeah. And you can make small adjustments that will help you to make trade-offs that you are proud of afterwards and that really were the right trade-offs. One of the things that I, I took from this book and, and your latest book, which we'll talk about in a bit, is, and I think I'm right about this, and but help me understand this, that essentialism is a pursuit. It's not a one-time thing and then you're set. Right? And what I mean by that is there are many things that you write about that I identify with, right? Like investing in t your time and things that are really important. But there's always that mission creep that happens in the course of our lives where then more things come on your plate and more things come on your plate. And you find yourself, or at least I do, treading water, flailing because I'm like, oh, my God, I I've completely you know, neglected this, this thing. First of all, you, as the person who wrote the the book on essentialism, do you ever find yourself in that position? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> One of the reasons I was so delighted to write essentialism was because I knew it would be a reinforcing mechanism for me, that it would help me on a daily basis to be talking about it and teaching it and trying to live it and live what I teach and to keep coming back to it. Yes, I mean, the subtitle is, is deliberate, a disciplined pursuit of less. You must keep coming back to it. The non-essentialist just doesn't admit the problem. Mm. The essentialist is aware of the problem and as a result of knowing and admitting the problem, keeps adjusting. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't know if you, I grew up and my father maybe didn't love asking directions. He didn't have a super great sense of direction either. And I, I remember that the problem wasn't being lost. Hmm. The problem is not admitting you're lost. As soon as you admit you're lost, you're actually not lost anymore because you know what to do. You stop and you ask directions. But it's that moment in between where you say, oh, no, no, I, I think it's, I feel it's down here. I think it's down there. I, and, and you don't want to admit where you are. Yeah. That's the journey from being a non-essentialist to essentialist. And it happens every single day. You know, what's the most important thing I need to do today? There's a, an entrepreneur in England who started asking that question. At first, she had answers for her business. And she kept asking the question day after day. Then it became about her health, protecting the asset. Mm -hmm. And one day she gets a call from her dad, says, oh, mum's in the hospital again. There's nothing for you to be worried about. You've got too much on your plate, but just keeping you in the loop. But when she asked the question that day, she knew exactly uh, you know, she said, I, I knew that what I needed to do was drop everything and go to the hospital. So yeah. two hour drive away. She goes there, uh, sees her mother. I love you. Her mother says, I love you back. 
Within an hour of that conversation, her mother, to everyone's surprise, had fallen into a coma. She never recovered. And a week later, the life support machine was turned off. Mm. I know about the story because she wrote to me afterwards to tell me about it and to say, if I hadn't been an essentialist that day, I would have made a different trade-off. <laughs> and so being an essentialist is that daily practice. I'm not advocating that people say no to everyone and everything without really thinking about it. Uh, that would be a book called Noism. <laughs> and I didn't write that book. You know, I wrote a book called Essentialism. Yeah. And the difference makes a difference because I'm really trying to help people find their clearest yes. What I'm really arguing is that non-essentialism, the lie it's telling us, is that you never have to say no. What a nonsense. Every time you say yes, you are saying no to many things. So the question is, are you currently saying no to the non-essential or to the essential? Mm. A lot of people are caught between the polite yes and the rude no. They yeah. think those are yeah. their only options. And yeah. to discover instead that there is a third alternative, that there is negotiation. I was trying to persuade my daughter to read a book a little while ago. I had this spontaneous moment of, oh, this would be a great book. You should just read this right now. And she was pushing back, not rudely, but pushing back. And then I went into my office for a meeting and she slipped a note under my door. I've just been pulling it up here so I can read it because I took a picture. She wrote, I already expressed my unwillingness to read this book, but I'm willing to make a counteroffer. I am not willing to read it all in one day today, but I'd be happy to explore the possibility of reading it in the future over the course of a few weeks. I believe it would be best to wait till the end of my literature assignment. If you would like me to read this book in place of a separate assignment and over the course of a few weeks, I'm sure that can be made possible. <laughs> She's bringing the reality and truth of a trade-off into the conversation. I was ignoring it. And she was saying, let's talk about what the most important thing is and make sure we don't just pretend that one can do it all. I mean, it's all in the, it's all in her reply and she, yeah. she gets it. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. I mean, the, the idea here is that the more we think about what, what we give up when we say yes, then it becomes easier to say no. When we can visualize or imagine what we are actually giving up, whether it's time with our families or pursuit of, of something that is essential, it helps us clarify how and when to say yes and when to say no. Yes, in a sense, if we get clear enough on a long enough intent, an essential intent, it's one decision that makes a thousand decisions. I'm thinking here of a business example. If you got into a time machine and went back, let's say to 1972, and you put a dollar into every one of the S&P 500 companies and you hold it, which company gives you the largest return on investment? Yeah. I've asked that question all over the world and literally nobody knows the answer ever until they cheat and they look online and then they know. And the answer is Southwest Airlines. And I'm just using a business example to make a human point. If you embrace trade-offs, you can build competitive advantage. Uh, and, and Southwest has done that significantly. They, they just didn't do so many of the things that the people were doing. In fact, there's a, there's a small but lovely example I came across, which is when their competitors were installing these new ticket machines and a whole system that went with it. They were expensive, millions and millions of dollars. And they're having this meeting together and they're saying, well, do we do this? You know, everyone's expecting this now and customers are starting to expect this and we don't have it. Should we do it? And as they're debating the trade-offs involved, somebody finally asks the question this way. They said, well, do we care what Continental thinks a ticket is? And intuitively, they all were like, no, we don't care what they're doing. We care what we think a ticket is. And so the solution they came up with, the only in the industry to do it, was just to use the receipt machines they already had. And they just printed on it in big letters, this is your ticket. And so they saved all of that investment, all of that distraction with a really simple, far easier solution. That's an illustration of the power of saying we aren't going to take our guidance from what everyone else is doing. For our own lives, I think it's the same. Yeah. So much of what we do is a function of what we believe that other people want. Not even what other people want, and certainly not what we want, but what we believe that other people want. And, and it's so far from figuring out what do I want? What is really within me? And let's make trade-offs to support that, to create something different and special uh, that, that makes this better contribution. Yeah. In your case, what 
when you ask yourself that question, what is essential? What's, what's your answer to that question? Well, when I had finished writing Essentialism, I had been asking that question in an especially intense way. Yeah. And my conclusions were really simple. There were two observations. One was I suddenly became more aware of how pathetically short life is. Hmm. That however little we think we have left, it, it's less. The second lesson is that I recognized that my family was not simply more important, but vastly more. I think that they epitomize what is essential. They matter in so many different ways. So they matter, of course, because the quality of our life is defined largely by the quality of our closest relationships. It matters because when I'm investing in my family culture, I'm not just investing in those relationships. I'm a part of a grand, bombastic, civil experiment to see if I can't raise children that are better for the whole community and for society than I was. And, and so you can go to layer after layer of why a thing matters so much. Mm. And we could go on beyond even what we've just described. But, uh, but I certainly found that, that it re-enthroned for me the idea of making daily trade-offs, uh, better trade-offs than I made in the hospital those years before. What is a simple way to make essentialism part of your daily practice and routine? Is it, is it as simple as asking yourself every day at at least once a day, what is essential or, or what's the most important thing that I need to do today? Or is there a systemic way that you think about it and that you recommend people assimilate in their own lives? I think that what you want to do in today's environment where people live a Zoom, eat, sleep, repeat type life, yeah, <laughs> where your to-do list almost always gets longer by the end of the day than it was at the beginning, in that environment, you need distinct practices. One of them is to have a done for the day list. I like to limit this to six items, three within the personal family space and maybe two or three within the professional space, something like that. It doesn't mean that you're limited to, you can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. But if I get really clear about those things, if I, if I do ask the first question, what's the most important thing I need to do today? What is the priority for today? then it helps reorient the rest of the day. And also sometimes I'll do this. You say, okay, this is what the most important thing is I need to do today. And why does it matter? And then maybe asking that question two or three times. And why does that matter? And why does that matter? That's one thing people can do right now to become more of an essentialist. It's an ongoing disciplined pursuit. All right, from essentialism to effortlessness, which is your your latest book, Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most. Um, I want to preface this by pointing out that you are you have an incredibly disciplined work ethic. I can't imagine that you don't put a lot of effort into what you do. So I guess we shouldn't confuse effortlessness with laziness. Well, that's that's one of the first important points to make is that the word lazy and the word easy are not synonymous. Yeah. Lazy is not being willing to put in effort. And easy is something that doesn't require a lot of effort. So that's an important thing to distinguish 
for people who are what my brother Justin calls the hit squad, hardworking, intelligent, talented people. That group will use effort regardless. Yeah. The problem is that they may, in a sort of Puritan way, have come to the idea not just that effort is a good thing, but they may think it's like the only thing. If you're not burned out, then you aren't doing enough. If you're not exhausted, you must not have a very important job. Yeah. I mean, that is for real for a lot of over, yes. you know, insecure overachievers. The other side is also true that they have come to distrust the easy. Well, if it's simple and easy, it must be wrong. Must not have value. Must not have value. And so I'm probably as big an advocate for putting in effort as anyone. And I also believe for otherwise overachievers, for high performers uh, who want to achieve 10x the contribution, that basically not one of them can work 10x harder. Yeah. So as soon as you put that dilemma in place, you, you either see people who give up on essentials you know, they, they let something go, they let their health go, they let their family go, they let, you know, key relationships go, or they've got to find an easier, smarter, better strategy. So Greg McEwen's ideas about how to simplify what's essential informed his follow-up book called Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most. It was published just last year. You write in, in the first chapter of the book uh, of, of, about an experience you had. You were asked to um, to present to a, a group of leaders on leadership. And you write that you really prepared. You over-prepared for this speech. And in your own words, you bombed it. Um, what happened? What? Tell me the story. I had been asked to, to do three leadership presentations to a tech company that was up and coming. They knew what they wanted. We'd agreed on it the night before. I got to think, well, how can I just do this even better for them? You know, I thought, well, I have some of these new ideas. So I started first, you know, I'll just change a few slides. And then I eventually changed all the slides. And, and then and I said, well, if I've changed the slides, I need to change the handouts. So I changed all the handouts. And, and so I ended up not doing an all-nighter, but, but going to bed really late. I'm up really early, so I'm foggy. Uh, get to the event and I'm got my back to the to the slides and I can't remember which slide is which and because I'm tired I'm not thinking clearly and then somebody asks me a question and I'm somewhat defensive to it because I they, they misinterpret a slide because any all of it's untested and the whole thing compared to what it would have been if I'd simply gone with what I already had ready for them what they'd already actually asked for uh, was a disaster they canceled the the other uh, presentations and what was going to be a multi-year relationship, you know, suddenly wasn't. And why? Because I hadn't done enough or because I'd done too much. So to learn that you can get not just to diminishing returns in your life, where each unit of effort is giving you less return than the last unit, but also all the way to negative returns, where every unit of effort you put in, you're making the whole thing worse as I did in this case, is something to be mindful of. And the type of strategy you should apply changes. You know, it struck me reading, reading through this book that 
you could also apply the term simplified. I think you've, you've mentioned this. Like if you distill this book into one word, it's simplification. Because as we talked about earlier, effortless doesn't mean lazy. Effortless can actually mean exertion, but in a smart, clear, and streamlined way. So for example, I have a, a production company that makes children's programs, mainly audio programs. And we're developing a whole bunch of new shows. And what we find is that the key is creating simple concepts. What's interesting is that it's actually hard. It takes a lot of thought and conversation to come up with something simple. But once you do, it makes everything more efficient afterwards. It reminds me of what what you're talking about. Simplification reminds me of some of the I interviewed for Effortless, uh, Mike Evangelist, and he worked for a DVD burning company at a time when DVD burning was brand new. So it hmm. might cost you thirty thousand dollars for one machine. I mean, wow. it was like really cutting edge technology. It was industry specific, and they had, if you can believe it, a one thousand page user manual, hmm. and. Apple comes along and they basically offer and then purchase the company. And the reason is because Steve Jobs wants to put a DVD burning app on the Mac as standard. Now, they already know his bias for simplicity. So they're given two weeks to simplify their offering and to bring, you know, a deck and have a conversation about this. And so they just go to work on this and they they remove so much complexity, so many features, so much stuff, and they're just ready to just share this and they're proud of it because they can see what how much better it is now. And, and Steve walks into the room and he walks up to the whiteboard and he draws a rectangle. He says, there's going to be one button that says burn. You pull your uh, file right here and once you see it loading, you click that one button that says burn. That's the app we're going to build. In that moment, Mike says that he personally felt embarrassed about the debt that they were going to share. They never did share it. But they learned, he learned something really valuable, which is that Steve's approach to simplification wasn't take complexity and make it simpler. He wanted to start from zero. Can we do it in one step? Let's not start with a thousand pages and get to a hundred pages. You start with zero. <laughs> Why matters? He wanted to make his products effortless. And that's true in our lives too, is that is that you want to make something as effortless as possible so that you can do something consistently. Yeah. Greg, you, you sort of break it down um, in terms of implementation to three three phases, effortless state, effortless action, and effortless results. Let's start with the effortless state because I think it, it actually, this is the bridge from your previous book, Essentialism, to this new book, Effortless, which is you begin by asking the question, right, what is essential? And I, I think that helps you begin to break down, you know, what, where you sort of focus your energy. I mean... Look, the idea of effortless state is something that we've all experienced, um, but we just experience it fleetingly. Being in that state is non-trivial because we always live in a state. And for many of us, we live in a state that approximates suffering. Yeah. In fact, we could oversimplify it to that, that you can either live in an effortless state or a state of suffering. And so that's really, in a sense, why to write effortless is because life is so hard for so many people in so many ways. 
And the problem is we respond to life's difficulties in ways that make it even harder than it needs to be. I, I started a, a simple hack and it was this. After I complain, I will say something I am thankful for. And what I noticed immediately was that I complain way more than I realized. Oh, that meeting took longer than expected. Oh, this, you know, this person just emailed me this thing that's bothering me. Oh, this, you know, just, just endless. And even if I could change that where I would just say one thing I was thankful for, it changed the state and instantly. Yeah. And because you're in a different state, you can see things more clearly. I mean, just think of the difference. Think of when, you know, you and I have been in a moment where we're so tired. We've lost our keys. We don't know where those are. We got an email that's just now bothering us crazy from our boss, from whoever, from a client. And this feels so critical. And now we're grumpy about that. And then, then you eat a warm meal, take a warm shower, get a good night's rest. And what that state looks like, you know, you wake up the next morning, suddenly the email doesn't even seem that aggressive. You're like, oh, I see what you meant. Yeah. Oh, let me just respond to that gracefully. You find your keys right where you left them. The state we're in materially affects what we do and how we do it. And so that's then where you shift into, you know, into effortless action. So let's talk about that, that right? I mean, to begin something that is essential, but to do it in an effortless way, you recommend that we define and actually visualize what the end state looks like, what done looks like, that you start out by imagining what the result is, right? Yeah, it's not like no one's ever heard this idea before, but it's still remarkable to me how often I and people that I've worked with don't do it. And so the, the consequence is that we're really vague in completion. And that means that we're going to do 10 times the work because how can you make the right trade-offs if you don't know what done looks like? And you might never get the thing done. Uh, give up halfway because, you know, you're like that whole experiment of like you go, you know, if the frog jumps halfway and then it you know, halves again and halves again, you never get to the other side. It's like yeah. you keep adding and adding and you yeah. get more and more exhausted. You never get there. And, you know, a single moment, even one minute on a project to say, okay, literally what does done look like? How will I know when I'm done is such a good return on investment because immediately you give your brain an instruction manual. It's like, what are the minimum steps required to achieve that end? And your brain goes into gear and it will know all along the way trade-offs that need to make. So you seriously increase your chance of being able to actually get to the completion and execution of your task. And so, as I say, it, it is surprising in a sense that you have to teach people to do this. But what I found is that you do because otherwise they won't do it. Um, one of the kind of suggestions that you make in the book, which I think is really um, helpful, is to start when you start. Take 10 minutes, unleash a microburst of just focused activity. Throw all your ideas out there and all your energy maybe onto the page or in a discussion. Is that – am I describing that more or less correctly? Let me illustrate the 
an even more correct way of um, of defining it. I was working with somebody who I said, what's something essential for you that you're under-investing in? He said, my health. Well, what do you mean? Eating healthy through the day. Uh, what normally happens? Well, I don't eat until I'm so hungry that I then go and get fast food. Hmm. And uh, this has been going on for a long time. I said, okay, what would Dunn look like? Uh, well, it would look like there was a healthy meal right there, you know, right as I'm getting hungry. So before I get overly hungry, so maybe by noon or something. Okay, I said, what could you do in 10 minutes to make that happen effortlessly? I didn't actually in my mind have an answer to the question. He did really quickly to my surprise. He said, well, I, I could just get one of these services. And I, I think in 10 minutes, uh, microburst, I could find it, put in my information and press go. That's microburst and that's effortlessness at work. I'm not suggesting absolutely everything can be done in the way I'm describing, but I have been encouraged and even shocked to find how often there are what I would call low-hanging fruit solutions to problems that have plagued us. A microburst is simply 10 minutes of focused effort on the next obvious thing you can do to try and bring about the result you want. So how do we kind of rewire the way we think about the connection between effort and success? This idea that the harder we work, the more burned out we get, the more value we are giving to whatever project or company or organization we're, we're part of. How do we, because it's part of it is, is re rewiring that in our own heads first, I guess. I certainly think that that's true. I think that part of what I'm trying to do with Effortless is to remove or at least invite people to consider that they might have a dominant assumption in them uh, that is keeping them trapped into a, there's only one path to execution. And that path is working harder. It's the only path. Well, it's a path, but it is not the only path. There's actually, I would say, quite a moral case for what I'm trying to argue for here, because I have watched people burn out for good intent and then double down on it. So right now in the world, I think there's a bigger window of opportunity than I have seen in my adult life for businesses to open themselves to this. Yeah, It's actually on the top five most leaders I'm talking to concerns. Executive at big tech company said to me recently, we've achieved decently great results over the last year and a half, but it has come at a cost, he said. Yeah. He said, we've had a higher turnover rate than we'd have liked to see. The people who stayed have achieved what they've achieved through grinding effort, yeah. and it's not sustainable. And that's the whole point, right? If you're taking a path that is not sustainable, eventually you will take a different path, uh, but you can make changes before you have to. Uh, you can find open people up to the idea of, hey, is, is there an effortless approach? Is there an easier, simpler way to achieve what we're trying to achieve? And I think this is, this is what has given this book the power of relevance. I think this is why it's, it's struck a nerve again, uh, because they're looking for an alternative way to continue to break through to the next level, yes, but without burning out. 
That's Greg McEwen. He's an author, public speaker, and leadership and business strategist. By the way, in June of 2020, Greg launched a podcast called What's Essential. And on the podcast, he interviews leaders and celebrities who apply the principles of essentialism to their own lives. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.